Thanks a lot. You can be seated. Uh, if you're new here, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to tell you that um, in high school and even in the college, I was in, a, in one of these, you know, on-again, off-again relationships. And uh, the girl that I was so smitten with in high school, um, it certainly seemed like during football season she was with me. And then during baseball season, she was with a good buddy of mine who played baseball only named Harv. And we joked, um, me and Harv did, all of his little tents at times, and we joked with her, like, hey, we know, like, football season's about ready to end. Are you going to break up with Brit so that you can go out with Harv? And uh, that certainly was the pattern. We're, we're all friends. We, we still laugh about it now. And, you know, um, we kind of lost my place there. You know, I got all caught up in that, you know. You guys just forget that, just erase that part. You know, sometimes, well, I know what I want to say. I want to talk about Harv for a second, because he's still a good buddy. It's like, you know, the girl didn't get either one of the guys, and that's the end of the story. But, um, you know, she would have really done well to get Harv, because he, he ended up getting drafted by the Philadelphia Phillies. He was voted the number one athlete in the state of Florida, uh, he batted over 600 as a six, three, six foot three shortstop, and uh, he's incredibly good looking. He had it, you know, if you know what I'm talking about. He still has it. Um, we went to my 40th reunion uh, a couple of years ago, and Cindy just wanted to keep talking to him. I don't know what that was about. <laughs> just kidding. But, uh, and he still has a lot of hair, so I'm really jealous of Harv in many ways. But uh, the, the moral of that story um, you know, sometimes you thank God for unanswered prayers. And, um, you know, I contrast that, those early angst of like high school and college, like, you know, trying to be in love and all that stuff. And then, then I think I fast forward to today. The, the woman that did commit herself to me for some unknown reason, you know, and we have been devoted to one another for over 40 years. And that's just such, I mean, so different. Um, I mean, you could say about our relationship that our love is like a ship on the ocean. We've been sailing with a cargo of love and devotion. <laughs> Someone give it up for the Hughes Corporation in 1974. And I just, you know, in keeping with that, I'd like to say to Cindy, I think she's over here somewhere, it's like, honey, don't rock the boat. <laughs> don't tip the boat over. You got to be of my generation to get that joke. Uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's hard for me to believe that someone would be devoted to me. Uh, we're not perfect. We don't have a perfect marriage, but the idea that we've been devoted to one another that long, you know, it's just remarkable to me, especially that it would be returned. Maybe, maybe it's more pity than devotion. I don't know. But when I thought about devotion, when I started thinking about what it means to be devoted, that was really the first relationship, the first context that I thought about. Um, because to me, devotion is the fusion of heart and commitment. Devotion is a fusion of heart and commitment. There's, there's action in devotion, and then there's feels. You know, Jesus said that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength. We need both. Because if all you have is commitment, then you, that relationship turns into kind of desiccated duty. But if all you have is heart, then you have kind of like the shallow emotion. 
in the relationship. It's kind of like sugary cereal, you know. There's nothing substantive to it. You need a fusion of both in devotion. Neither is sufficient alone. And think about that in terms of relationships or organizations or a business or a team that, you're de- that, that you would think you're devoted to. Um, you want your heart to be in it. But it isn't just heart. It's also a commitment. There's something substantive that comes out of our actions. So that, that applies to you know, what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. We're starting a brand new series here called Devoted. And it's a collection of messages where we're going to talk about what it means to be devoted to God. Um, but before we talk about that, I think it's really important on this Sunday as we launch as a, kind of like an undergirding of these thoughts when we talk about being devoted to God and also as an overlay to any devoted acts or devoted commitment that when we start talking about being devoted to God, it's important for us to remember the one that is devoted to us. And when we talk about God being devoted to us, I think for some of us, it's hard to wrap our brain around that. It might be because of your experience in other relationships or um, maybe, maybe you've gone through a church, you know, a painful time in church where, like, devotion is just something that you think everybody else has. In fact, when you, some of you might be here today, you might be searching in your life. And that's why you came to church, because you're coming out of the pain of a relationship that turned out not to be devoted. And so I think it's important for whether, whatever stage you're in, whether you're exploring Christianity or you're new, or, you know, you've been a Christian for a really long time, I think it's important to start with this main thought. And that is this, that God is and always has been wholeheartedly devoted to you. God is and always has been wholeheartedly devoted to you. Through the, the, the redemptive work of his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus, no matter where you're coming from right now, Jesus is the quintessential devotee to you and I. And I think that th- there are many evidences of that, but I'm going to I'm going to highlight three today. And you can follow along on your note sheet if you're a note taker. If not, just sit back and relax. We're going to put everything up on the screen, okay? We know that God's devoted to us, first of all, because of the testimony of New Testament authors. Because of the the written record of these New Testament authors, many of whom were eyewitnesses to Jesus' death, his life, his resurrection. They were the first Christ followers. And one of the my favorite books in the Bible and one of my favorite chapters in the Bible kind of talks about this. In Colossians 3, verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And that section of Scripture goes on, and you can see that there's a thread here that Paul is saying there's something that happened, and because of that, there are these qualities that really describe a Christ follower. And the passage goes on. But that's, that's not what I want to talk about today. I want, to, I want us to look at the reason why Paul says these qualities should be in our lives. Because it, 
It describes a level of devotion that God has for us. Notice how Paul phrases it. He says, you know, you, God's chosen people. Now, there's theological ramifications of that, but I want to just talk about it at a, at a visceral level. The idea that God chooses you. That, that word means that he specifically chose you. It implies that you're his favorite. Now, now, how could all of us be his favorite, right? Well, I look at it like through the context of being a parent. I have three daughters. I tell them all they're my, they're my favorite. April's my favorite oldest child. <laughs> Amber's my favorite middle child. And Aubrey's my favorite youngest child. And, you know, we talk, we joke about that. They, they actually, there's a little bit of competition between them about who would be the favorite, which I think is really healthy for them in the long run to, like, show me why they should be the favorite. But, you know, when you think, when, when before you're a parent, you, you have no idea how much you could love somebody, and then you have a baby, right? You think you love your wife, and you do. But when you experience a child together, it's like a whole new level of love. And then then you have another child. And you think, oh, man, I'm kind of worried that I'm not going to love this new baby as much as I I love this three-year-old or whatever. And they come, and it's like, yeah, I love them just as much. It's not like love has like this, it's like a pie, and you carve it up, and the more slices you have to cut, the smaller the slices get. Love is infinite. And God's love for us is infinite. And we have been chosen. We're, you're his favorite. Uh, he also says that you're holy. He says the, the holy ones, which means set apart. You're like special. You're cherished. And then he uses, uh, Paul, or the NIV translates one word in two words. says dearly loved. Really, it's, it's the word agape, which is the strongest word available to Paul's vocabulary at that time to describe God's love. You are dearly loved. What's interesting about your Bible, when you think about your Bible, like, what is it? It's the inspired Word of God. It's authoritative in our lives. It is the record of God's redemption of man and God's interaction with human beings. And in virtually every, well, in every book, in every chapter, in almost every verse, one message comes through, that God loves you. Now, we can kind of get used to hearing that so that it doesn't mean as much. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you're probably right now thinking, you know, a message about God's love, I got that one down. Okay, let's move on. You guys know what olfactory adaptation is? Olfactory adaptation. It's like when you, your ability to smell an odor is diminished the longer you're exposed to it. So you smell something, and you know, like immediately, and then like a minute later, it's still there, but you don't smell it anymore. It's the reason why you can't smell your house, because you live there. You can't smell your own body odor, and you can't smell your own breath, which is really tragic in some of your cases, I have to say, because we're smelling it. <laughs> so I'm going to make a big leap here, so hang with me. 
The, the idea of someone loving us has an, has an adaptation to it, too. It's a lot like our smell. Because the first time that person that you're so in love with told you that they loved you, it's like it, it meant so much. How many of you have been married 10 years or plus? Because you're going to totally relate to this. Okay. If you've been married one year, six months, you're not even going to be able to understand this. It's like it's going to be in a foreign language. But if you've been ten, married 10 years or longer, I bet you can remember the first time that person told you that they loved you. Or maybe the first time you said, I love you. And it's like, it just meant so much. I remember with Cindy the first time I told her that I loved her. Like, I love you. <laughs> it's like, a, it wasn't that ugly, but like inside, that's what it wanted to come out as. Like there was so much like in my chest and my, you know. And then when she finally said it to me, actually said to me right after I walked by, but that's not true. I said it first for the record. And I've never, never forgiven her for that. But, but I, when, when you first say that when you're dating, it's just like it means so much inside. But really, you don't know what you're talking about, right? It doesn't really mean that much when you first get married. But after you've been married for 10 years, it actually starts to mean something. But it affects us less, doesn't it? See, when your spouse says, I love you now, you may not get all the feels that go with that, but it means so much more. When they say, I love you now, it means I, I, I love you uh, even though you get crabby and you get tired, and you have hair growing out of your ears, you put on a little weight, your neck's all wrinkled up like a pack of hot dogs, you got a few uh, hairy moles, your breath stinks often, and you snore. And by the way, I'm not talking about Cindy on that. I'm talking about myself. So there's, there's the same sense when we hear when we read, God loves you. It's like we just kind of get used to it. So if you're a brand new Christian, or you have been a Christian for 50 years, I want you to hear this next verse with all the feels you possibly can, with, like you're hearing it for the first time, because you should. 1 John 4, 16, we, we know and we, we rely on the love God has for us. We know about God's love, but today what I want you to do is to rely on that. I want you to sense it and feel it and experience it. When we read the testimony of the New Testament authors about God's incredible love for us, The longer you're a Christian, it should mean more to you. And if you've been a Christian 10 years, and when you, if you're skimming over the passages that talk about God's incredible love for you, you're missing out. And you've just had an adaptation because it means so much more now. God is an 
always has been wholeheartedly devoted to you. We know that from the testimony of the New Testament authors, but I want you to see how far this goes back. Another evidence is the creation account. You know, Genesis, that word means beginning or origins, and when it comes to the ancient texts that we have of the origins of mankind, Genesis stands out, and it's unique. I'm going to give you a nice to know. One of the things that um, scholars debate uh, is um, we have Genesis account, and then we have many other ancient accounts of the creation of human beings. One is, one is the Enuma Elish. And the, the Enuma Elish is the um, Babylonian account of creation. And around 1849, they found these seven tablets, clay tablets, that have this writing on it that is their description of how life began. And the debate that goes on is, which one came first? Because to, scholar, to some scholars, they seem very similar. So which, one, so which one borrowed from the other in the story? Yet on closer examination, Genesis is really much different, very different than the Enuma list. Especially in its treatment of human beings and their purpose and how they came to be. The Enuma list, like, which translated means went on high, says that mankind uh, was created much later in the creation process and was created for a different purpose, that to serve the lazy gods. And I'm going to give you a quote from this document that is a, a, quote, a direct quote from who is called Marduk. He is the king of all gods. And it says this about the creation of man. I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. Verily, savage man I will create. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. So in many of the creation myths, mankind is an afterthought. And in this case, mankind is not just an afterthought. Human beings have been created to take a load off the gods. But in Genesis, we see the the opposite. In Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So what I want you to see in contrast here is that in Genesis, in the very first chapter, human beings are created. They are made in God's image, which is to say, as close as a human being could be made to likeness of God in some way that we don't understand, we have been made. We, are, we have this, this seal on us that, that marks us as, as someone who is precious to God. We are made in the image of God. And we're not here just to serve the gods to make the, give them a life of ease. We have been placed here to rule, to take on the responsibility of what happens on this planet. See, the ancient non-biblical creation myths leave, leave human beings with no rights. They leave women uh, to be a, as a lesser creation. And unless you were born with status or 
in a, in a, in a powerful community, uh, not one that could be taken advantage of and placed under slavery or, you know, your land stolen. Under those ancient myths, without the dignity that the Bible gives to us, you have, you have no hope. You have no intrinsic value. And the kings and leaders who followed these philosophies or these myths, they treated human beings in keeping with their understanding of what their documents told them human beings were worth. But in Genesis, mankind is created early. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. When God is done with creation, with man and woman, he says it is very good. And the dignity that the, that the creation account gives from Genesis is, is vastly different than any other text. The value of every person established, is established from the very beginning. There's no parallel to that in non-biblical creation accounts. Creation, this idea that man and women, men and women are made in the image of God, is the foundation for what we call the golden rule. You know the golden rule, right? Treat others as you would want to be treated. There's no reason to do that if you have no dignity, if you have no intrinsic value, if you're just a, 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 of a nation, of a region that really doesn't matter. Then you can be enslaved. We can take what you have. We can execute you. We can work you to death, because why wouldn't we? You have no value. Only these people have value. That's the golden rule. It comes from creation. The only reason we would treat others as we would be treated is they have dignity as well. In fact, the platinum rule, not the golden rule, the platinum rule that Jesus laid out, not only, not only treat others the way you want to be treated, but love one another as I have loved you as God has loved you because I love you and you have value even if this culture or this society even if in, in your own perspective you don't have worth you're of great worth to God so in the ancient religions of the day uh, you are just a slave to the gods. In modern atheism, you're just a slave to your DNA. But according to the Genesis account, the God who made you in his image has bestowed upon you all the dignity that a creator can give to a created being. And when, even when you rebel against him, he pursues you. God is and always has been wholeheartedly devoted to you. That is the testimony of the New Testament. And that is the indication of even the beginning of mankind. Lastly, we, we know that God is wholeheartedly devoted to us because of the example of Jesus. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is a wonderful verse, so much in it. But what I want to pull out from it today is that Jesus Christ was the embodiment of God. The Word became flesh. 
And so if whatever we can argue about, what God looks like, who God is, how he would respond in this situation, God put flesh on himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we can understand God in our puny little human minds by looking at Jesus because he is like us. So Jesus is the expression of who God is as we would understand it. Who is God? Read your Gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Reread them if you haven't read them in a long time. If you're exploring faith, read the Gospels. Find out who God really is in the person of Jesus Christ. And what you'll find is that God, as a human being, spent his life loving people. You can see it in the people that he pursued, the people that he helped. He, Jesus loved the religious, and he loved the unreligious. He loved the people that were at the top of the, the societal totem pole, and he loved people that were broken and poor. He spent his life helping people. Jesus sought out people with sickness and infirmity, with mental illness. He spent time with the poor and the sinful and the self-righteous and the faithless and the doubting and the rich and the powerful and the weirdos. Jesus sought them out. He loved and accepted them all. You know how you... Jesus is the example to me of how you know someone loves you and how we're to express love. And this is in your notes, and then we'll be done. You know someone is devoted to you or loves you, first of all, because it costs them. See, talk is cheap, but love is not. I know, I know a couple, pr pretty young couple, where the relationship works like this. He, he has an education and a, and a great job, but he works part-time. But he tells his wife she needs to work full-time because she needs to make more money so that he can do the things that he wants. Now, he works part-time, she works full-time, but he controls the entire, all the money. He controls every decision in that household. If something needs, he decides what needs to be done, whether we're going to remodel this or that. He decides if we're going to buy this or that. But she works full-time, he works part-time. When you're at work full-time, and it's my day off. I can't watch the kids. I'm not, I'm not your babysitter. Because I have stuff I want to do. And I want, I'm going to penny pinch you on these groceries. Wives, please don't be nut, uh, elbowing your husbands right now in this conversation, okay? Um, I'm, gonna, I'm only going to give you this much for grocery money. Because I control everything. And you've got to make it happen with that. And, and by the way, on that list, you need these three things because those are my favorites. This is a literal relationship. I know. And the reason why I have to penny pinch you is because I need something. And I, and I can't get it unless we, we just squeeze all this down. Now, let me ask you. Like, you're probably angry right now, right? You want to punch that guy. So do I. But I'm a pastor. Would you say he loves her? No obvious answer. Because his love doesn't cost him anything. It costs her 
everything. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2.6 of Jesus, though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in, every human, appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. If you ever wondered if God loves you, look at what it cost him. Also, when someone loves you, you don't have to be deserving. You don't have to be deserving. You, have you heard the phrase... Uh, you can't win today's ball game on yesterday's home run. My dad used to repeat that one to me. I think it made me the man I am today. <laughs> what that means, in case you've never heard it, is like, you know, you're only good as what you can provide today. Your value today is only based on what you can produce in this moment, what you bring to this relationship. I'll give you a great example. Um, Last Monday, we had the National College Championship. And um, leading up to that game, the media, the darlings of the media, were Alabama and Nick Saban. They're like a professional team. There's no question about it. But this past week, who have we been talking about? Clemson, the Paw and Dabo Sweeney. Now, Alabama's going to be awesome next year. And if you're an Alabama fan, you know, I don't feel sorry for you at all. <laughs> Jesus prayed that, the, that he wanted God's will to come to this earth, the kingdom of God. And it happened last Monday when Clemson <laughs> beat Alabama. Um, I'm just kidding. Not really, but... But it's just like, you know, who was the conversation? It just switched based on who won that game. The darlings of the media. You know, uh, my, uh, my grandkids, they're, they're all playing sports and everything, and they, they have to have these tryouts. Do you guys remember tryouts? Anybody remember Little League tryouts for baseball, football? You know, you go out, you got to like bring, you, in case you don't know what I'm talking about, you got to go out and perform in front of everybody, and there's a bunch of scary adults with no... Uh, you know, notebooks and, you know, writing stuff down. And, you, and like, they're evaluating you on what you're doing. May, maybe you tried out for band. You know, band's the same thing. You know, you got to go in there and play your drum or whatever. And, you know, they're all sitting there. Maybe you had an interview for a job recently. And you walk in, there's three to five people sitting on a panel, and they're asking you their questions. And what are they determining? Whether you're worthy, whether you're deserving in that moment. You know what's awesome about God? God doesn't have tryouts. And God doesn't do acceptance interviews. Paul wrote in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for, died for us. If you've been wondering if God accepts you, if, you're, if you could be deserving, it's not on the list. You're not being evaluated like that. If you ever wonder if God loves you, remember that he loved you whether you were deserving or not. And then last, Jesus is an example of this love. We know someone loves us when their love is freely given. When it's freely given. Now God forbid this week 
that any of you would be, get in a car accident. But when you, if you do, hopefully you have insurance, and then you're going to call up your insurance company and you say, I got in an accident, and I need you to put me back together, put my car back together, give me a new car, wh whatever it is. And do you know why they're going to do that or not do it? Because you've been paying your premiums. It isn't because they love you. <laughs> Newsflash. You, if you haven't been paying your premiums and you get in an accident, you call them up and say, well, you guys are going to show me some love, right? They're not going to. Because that relationship is based on you paying your premiums. You have a quid pro quo, quid pro quo relationship. You have a transactional relationship. You do this, I'll do this. And sometimes we're in human relationships like that. Where you probably have been, or probably you've found yourself doing so. Like you found yourself in a relationship where you're only with them because of what they can get from you. Now, sometimes in business that's appropriate in different organizations, but like in human relationships, we, we, don't wanna, we don't want our value to be based on, you know, what we can do for them in that moment. John wrote, recorded these words of Jesus's in John 10, 18, when Jesus talked about his imminent crucifixion he said no one takes my life from me but I lay it down of my own accord if you've ever wondered whether God loves you remember that he gave his life freely see the point is that God loves you he loves me he loves us whether we serve him whether we give a dime, give a witness, or give a hoot. God loves us. Even if you don't believe in God, do you know that God believes in you? God is, and always has been, wholeheartedly devoted to us. I hope that those words will resonate in your heart in a way that they haven't in a long time or maybe for the first time. Let's pray.